So good evening, everyone. Today we're getting into chapter seven of the foundation of Buddhist practice, which is on the mind, body, and rebirth. So before we get started, let's just settle our minds by focusing on the breath for a bit, and I will uh, set a motivation, and then we'll get into the review. So I did not go up, grow up Christian or in a Christian culture. So today on Christmas Day, I asked Google, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And the reply I got from Wikipedia was a quote from the American magazine published in 1889, uh, written in response to the growing commercialization of Christmas. And the quote says, to give up one's very self, to think only of others, how to bring the greatest happiness to others. That is the true meaning of Christmas. So that's a wonderful aspiration that we don't want to just be thinking about on Christmas Day. It's something we strive to bring into our lives every day, especially as uh, practicing Buddhists. And it behooves us to investigate what is this self that I'm clinging so hard to? And what does it mean to give it up? How do we cherish others more than ourselves? What is this greatest happiness and how do I bring it about for myself and others? So today on Christmas Day, let's rejoice in all these deep questions and values that all the world's religions are so concerned with at the most fundamental level. And how what we share in common are this deep wish to overcome our self-centeredness and to find ways to develop our good qualities, this common faith in human potential, knowing that we can cultivate all our good qualities in order to be of the greatest benefit to all beings. So with that in mind, we'll spend a bit of time reflecting on the nature of mind and sharing with each other. So, when in doubt, look on Google, <laughs> right? I'm being a bit uh, facetious here because, you know, if you look on Google for like how to meditate, you know, you're going to find lots of resources, including ads from secular mindfulness apps. Um, I just learned that uh, the app Headspace turns $100 million in annual revenue, and it's valued at $320 million. Another app called Calm turns 150 million as well in annual revenue and is valued at 1 billion at the moment. So there's, there's big money to be made huh, from mindfulness meditation. But is that going to bring the ha greatest happiness to ourselves and others? Yeah. So I was thinking about this in the context of what Venerable Sampton reviewed with us last week, right, which was chapter six on how to structure a meditation session and how that really is of paramount importance in a time where it looks like you can yeah, ask Google how to meditate or just download an app and turn it on. And in there, there are all kinds of meditations from how to, meditations for birthing, <laughs> meditations for sleep. Uh, I saw recently, today I just read that Giselle Bunchen, the Brazilian supermodel, is leading meditations on one of these apps. <laughs> There's another app that has partnered with LeBron James. <laughs> I watched the ad. You have LeBron telling you, the mind is a muscle. Train your mind with LeBron James. Okay, it's so weird. I don't know. 
yeah, I'll, I'll save you the trouble of watching it yourself. Yeah, there's another uh, ad called Do Nothing for 30 Seconds with LeBron. <laughs> and that's just it, you do nothing with him for 30 seconds. So I was telling Venerable Children, it's time for her to make videos like, improve your three-point throw with Venerable Children. <laughs> if LeBron can teach you to meditate, Venerable Children, I'm sure it can teach you to do a layup. <laughs> uh, but her conclusion was that, uh, no, she can teach you how to lose at basketball with grace. <laughs> that, that she could teach, and that's not easy. So we can look into those BBC talks. <laughs> yeah. So yes, chapter six, how to structure a meditation session, I think is really of great importance. And it's worth noting that it comes in the middle of volume two, right, of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. It is not chapter one in volume one that starts with how to meditate, sit down, turn on your phone, <laughs> right? Instead, you've had this whole volume that sets up the Buddhist worldview, right, that's talking about what is the mind, what, what is emotion, Right, how do we understand that in the modern context? You know, who was the Buddha? How did Buddhism spread? So there's a whole context of study, reflection, before you get to meditation. Right? Venerable often, and all our teachers tell us, you know, if you just sit down and breathe, you don't really know what you're doing with your mind. Um, I mean, do you even know you have a mind? Right? So it's really important to study and to understand the context of Buddhist meditation. And that's really what chapter 6 is about. So I wanted to very briefly touch on some of the points in the beginning of that chapter that I find really helpful for myself personally, and use that to lead us into, we'll do a very short meditation uh, on the key topics of chapter seven before we get into discussion and more. So yeah, personally, I find it so helpful that chapter six begins by telling us about the different types of meditation. And I think that's a useful guide for you to come back to anytime you're on a meditation marketplace, right? And you're trying to figure out what is the purpose of this? You know, is this a stabilizing meditation, right? Is this a meditation where I'm trying to put my mind on a virtuous or neutral object, right? So virtuous object like the Buddha, neutral object like the breath, or so many of these online meditations are like, listen to the sound of the rain, <laughs> like a ne neutral <laughs> object, I guess you're not going to get attached to that. Um, and then we have analytical meditations where we're trying to penetrate and understand an object. Right? So we'll do some of that where we're trying to look at what is the nature of the mind. Yeah. And then we also have meditations um, yeah, to either on an object to apprehend it or to transform our subjective experience, to transform the mind into compassion or love yeah, and try and hold that state of mind. I find it helpful too that you know, in chapter six, we get like a really step-by-step -step description of what's going on as we set up our meditation. Um, and it's a good reminder that we have to do preparatory practices, right? Other than studying, we do six preparatory practices, uh, which also do not include turn on your phone, right? But they are clean the room and arrange your altar, right? Make offerings, sit in an appropriate position, right? With the spine straight, the Virochana position, if you can. We take refuge, we generate bodhicitta. So, you know, the purpose of meditation is laid out from the start. We're coming back to our motivation. We're not looking for happiness here and now, but we're not looking to space out and feel good for 10 minutes and then get back to our very busy lives. We're not cultivating focus so we can improve our sales targets, right? We're generating refuge in the three jewels and bodhicitta, the altruistic intention to become fully awakened for all beings. And then we contemplate the seven limbs and we request inspiration. Right, so we don't have time so much today to go through all these steps, um, but I thought we'd just uh, begin with a brief stabilizing meditation, right? You, so you can contemplate the Buddha or the breath. And then I'll guide a short meditation on the nature of the mind, which is one of the three key topics of chapter seven. Yep. And then we'll get into a discussion about yeah, what is this thing we call the mind? Yeah. So just very briefly before we jump into that, um, if we can recall, what, is, what are the two qualities of the mind that we always bring up in Buddhism? Anyone want to? Yeah. Clarity and cognizance. Right. So that's already part of our study, right? So for people online who are new to this, we're not talking about a part of the brain. We're not talking about, yeah, some nebulous thing. <laughs> Um, but we're talking about something that has the quality of clarity and cognizance, 
that has a dependent relationship on the body. We'll get more into that later. And in the book, uh, in chapter seven, clarity is defined as being immaterial, right? So the mind cannot be apprehended by our physical senses. It's not made of atoms. It's mirror-like and it can reflect objects. And its fundamental nature is not affected by defilements. And the cognizance piece is, refers to the mind's ability to engage with its object. So just taking this little bit, you know, so that's what we study, right? We hear in the teachings. Then what we're trying to do is to apply them in our analytic meditation. So as Venerable Samton reminded us last week, chapter six here is like the keystone, I know, the linchpin, right? You're going to use it to meditate on every single topic you come across in all the 10 or 20 volumes that we're going to encounter. So it's a chapter worth coming back to again and again and again, because you don't want to just read about it um, or just talk about it with your friends. The important thing is to meditate on these topics and to see how they relate to our personal experience and how we're understanding them. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, we'll do a bit of stabilizing meditation, uh, either on the Buddha or the breath, um, and then I'll just guide us through an analytic meditation on the nature of the mind. So let's spend a few moments just calming the mind. So now that we've spent a bit of time calming the mind, we're going to turn our attention to the mind itself to try and observe what exactly is meditating, experiencing, and feeling. So observe what is your mind? Does it have shape or color? Can you find it somewhere? Try to get a sense of this clarity and cognizance of the mind that is perceiving, feeling, and experiencing. So objects may arise, but we're trying to get a sense of the subject that's perceiving the object.
And if thoughts arise, observe. What are thoughts? Where do they come from? Where are they? And where do they disappear to? And as you watch thoughts come and go, try and experience your mind as being clarity and cognizance, free from thought. So this little guided meditation comes straight out of the um, Lamrim meditation outlines that are on Venerable Trijan's website. And I think it's just a good example of how she's, you know, pulling straight from the teachings and making them into points for meditation. And in chapter six, it encourages us to do that for ourselves. But before we have experience, we can rely on what the masters and our teachers have already put together. And I find that resource really useful. So, yeah, I sent this question around to the community in advance, and for sure people online can chime in too. I'm really curious, um, how do you know you have a mind? Was this something you grew up believing? Or, you know, or was there a point in your life too where you're like, oh my goodness, there's this thing called the mind? <laughs> yeah, what, what happened for people? I'm genuinely curious. How do you... You can answer it either way. How did you find out you or did you know you have a mind or how do you know now that you have a mind? Yes, Venerable Kunga. So I had um, a mental illness when I was growing up. I still have it, actually. I mean, it's not serious, right? <laughs> but um, I could see how it colored my perception. And then mm. so I started to take some medication and then how I perceived things was completely different. And, you know, before I had the symptoms, I could see a change in my mind. So I knew something is going on here. It's things aren't, th don't always appear as they are. There's something that's mediating mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I don't think until I met the Dharma that I thought that, I thought the mind was the brain. Mm -hmm. And that everything that was going on, even though in here, had to do with something, it, I didn't see it as a separate entity. Either it was a bleed through or there was some sort of connection. But this part was going on up here, but I was experiencing it down here. I don't think I ever had an understanding that they were two separate, one material and one immaterial. I really, then it, I mean, I was never explained to me. And then, mm -hmm. then you throw in the soul with the 
you know, with my upbringing, which is the closest version of something that isn't material, that is something that is sort of me, that I experience my life through and that I get to be a good person, bad person that kind of goes someplace else. So if I had something that was even slightly, slightly related to something that was the mind, it was the soul. Mm, right. I remember going on a whitewater raft trip one time um, in, I think it was in high school, and it was scary, and I caught myself wanting to put my mind somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then I, I caught that and I thought, how often do I do that in my life? Put my mind somewhere else because I don't want to be present. So that was like an eye-opener. And then when I got to high school, um, or in, in high school, I, there was a, a visiting brother, a Christian brother, uh, who came to our Catholic high school and he was watching us play tennis and he said, um, I can help you with your tennis game. I'll teach you how to meditate. This was in the 70s when the Beatles were doing it, so it was very cool to do. And I wrote in my diary, I have found Nirvana. <laughs> but he he had a little uh, TENS machine or some kind of machine that you could put around your, your head and measure just the gross waves, you know. And I, And he taught me how to watch my breath. And I could see that my... What I was doing with my breath was changing something in my body as well. So I think that was really the first time I had a more, uh, you know, like a fuller mm-hmm. explanation of there's mind and there's body. That was, yeah. Venerable something? It's similar to what Venerable Sumkin was sharing. You know, I grew up in a culture, the science textbooks just talked about the brain. Mm-hmm. That was the language that was used. There was no language of mind at all. And then because I was also raised Catholic, this thing about the soul, that wasn't the brain, but it was perplexing. Like, you know, I was pretty sure as a kid I was going to hell. So was it the brain going to hell or was it the soul going to hell? Maybe everything was going to hell. Um, but it was very mysterious and unclear. Matt? Also from the science background, for a longer time I thought that the mind was just like the electrical activity with mm. your in your brain and then going down into your spinal cord. And I was like, well, that's the mind. I remember seeing an infographic, just like something like a meme. <laughs> and it was like there were three circles and one said mind, one said body, one said spirit, and it was very new agey. And I was like, huh, that seems just as feasible as it being some electrical activity. So that was the first time I considered it being something separate. Yeah, I guess we struggle with this topic because the mind is immaterial, right? And we're so focused on things we could see and measure with our senses. And so it gets colored by our cultural understandings or upbringings, right? A conception of a soul or a conception of electrical activity firing off some kind of emotional response that you can't see, but you can maybe sometimes feel in the body. Yeah, but for sure, I think all of us have had some experience where you are physically in an environment, but noticing that your mind is doing something else, right? Whether, like you say, it's... I think the example Venerable often gives is, you know, you're on a holiday, everything looks like it's perfect, but you are just miserable. Nothing goes right. And you realize, okay, something else is going on. You can have all the physical things you want, but the happiness is is happening some somewhere else. Okay, I'm experiencing it somewhere else. No matter how good the brownie is, today is just a bad day. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, for sure. I remember being bullied on the bus and mentally thinking, I will now send my mind somewhere else to be safe because I'm can't get off the bus right now. But you know, I'm gonna send it somewhere else. So that was a curious memory to. Re- So yeah, whether to protect yourself. I asked this question because years ago I went for this retreat at Bright Hill Temple that the Singaporeans will know. Um, It's the biggest temple in Singapore. And I had, you know, was all geared up for this like weekend meditation retreat. We're going to sit. And it was led by a teacher from the Theravada tradition. So I was expecting like, you know, we're going to sit for a long time, watch our breath, or he's going to teach us Vipassana, noting different things. We arrived and I think he gave a short talk and he said, Okay, so your assignment is to go and find your mind. He said, 
you don't have to meditate sitting here on a cushion. You can meditate anywhere. <laughs> okay, so go, find somewhere in the temple. Go and find your mind. I was so mad. <laughs> you cannot imagine. I was like, I was expecting this to be some kind of relaxing <laughs> retreat, you know, we like chill out together. I, I was not expecting to be given a problem I couldn't solve. <laughs> I, don't, I just remember being so angry, <laughs> like, find my mind? Yeah, correct. And not knowing that was my mind. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> and that's my emotional habit pattern. The teacher gave an assignment, we must win. <laughs> so. Find your mind. I just remember walking all over the temple, very frustrated, thinking negative thoughts like, I guess the staff get a day off or whatever, <laughs> you know. Finally, I found some quiet spot somewhere and I sat on my shoes and I did what I knew and watched my breath. And I was like, I don't know where's the mind. I can't find it. <laughs> Feeling like a failure. <laughs> Again, typical habit of mind. We come back and get together and there's some debrief, but I don't know. I just remember leaving that retreat feeling like I had failed in life somehow. <laughs> so I was to find my mind, couldn't find it. So I am very grateful for these very clear teachings <laughs> that have definitions, right? And have suggestions about ways to meditate on and find the mind, right? But really, yeah, it's our thoughts. It's our emotional experiences, but below that too, I think when we're getting to the nature of mind that's free from thought, that's something really hard to experience, as this chapter tells us. Um, like even, I remember the first silent retreat I went to, where we had to be quiet for three days, I was so shocked. I don't know if people, I was like, oh, I'm talking to myself all the time. Like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> it's like this endless running commentary, right? I'm like, now, am I here on time? Am I sitting in the right place? Am I sitting in the wrong place? Who is that? Why are they sitting so close to me? No, 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 on and on and on. And you get to see this endless stream of whatever your most habitual affliction is, right? Am I left out? Are these people better than me? <sighs> so yeah. And then finally you get to quiet that after some time meditating and it's like, oh, there are also other levels of mind. Interesting. So I just wanted to read my favorite part of this chapter quickly, which I think is really the best um, description of how to meditate on the nature of mind, right? from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I will say, I, the first time I read it was when we did the Four Establishments of Mindfulness Retreat, where Venerable Children, um, I think, gave us a passage similar to this, which is His Holiness's instruction on how to meditate on the nature of the mind and how challenging that can be. But it could be something interesting for us to bring into a long retreat you know, at some point. Because the mind does need, we do need to really calm and quiet those grosser levels of endless waterfall thought to even get to like, what's the space between them? And there is, there is a space between them. We just don't often recognize it. So His Holiness says, that while we may easily say the words, the mind is mere clarity and cognizance, it's difficult to have a notion of what the mind is. Yeah, for people referring to the book, we're on page 167 to 168. Yeah. So it's difficult to have a notion of what the mind is, let alone to perceive its clear and cognizant nature. So although the clarity and cognizance of the mind are present in every moment of mental activity, we are not aware of them. What prevents this? So consciousness is usually identified in relation to its object. I think I heard Matt saying that just now, right? Where... You have a visual consciousness perceiving blue or the mental consciousness thinking about a table. Right? So that's how we understand what a consciousness is. Right? It engages with this object. It appears in the aspect of that object. But because of the mind's involvement with that object, it is obscured per from perceiving the actual nature of the mind. So he says, the mind is usually invaded by a host of constructive and destructive thoughts that concern external objects and people we have perceived or experienced. These cloud the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, preventing us from perceiving it. When the flow of thought slows down, it is possible to see into the depths of the mind, its clear and cognizant nature that is like a still pool of water. So one technique for discovering the conventional nature of mind is to prevent the mind from arising in the aspect of those objects and to stop all conceptual thoughts regarding past and future events. To do this, first generate a strong determination not to let your mind be disturbed by sense perceptions such as sounds or thoughts. Let your mind rest without being overrun by sensory perceptions or ideas. At first, it may seem that more thoughts than usual arise, but this is not the case. 
It is simply that in your daily life, you do not pay much attention to how many thoughts there are. So continuing to meditate in this way, you will gradually be able to keep the mind at a distance from sense objects, and the barrage of thoughts will diminish and eventually cease. By the mind not arising in the aspect of those objects, the clear nature of mind will become apparent. When you experience your mind in the absence of thoughts about the past and future, you will have a sense of vacuity, which is the gap between the mind and those objects. This vacuity is not the ultimate nature of mind, the mind's emptiness of inherent existence, nor is it nothingness as in blank-minded meditation. So here I think for me anyway, this was like the clearest ever description of the conventional nature of the mind, which is so hard to find, as he says. And that's so humbling, yeah, where he, His Holiness in this chapter says he gained a small experience of that conventional nature of mind during a one-month retreat. So, you know, that really helped me adjust my expectations. <laughs> the first winter retreat I sat, where genuinely I thought by the end of three months I was going to walk through a wall. <laughs> that shows you the level of delusion. You know, come on, I have faith, right? Here's Jeffrey Hopkins edited, walking through walls. I'm like, if we follow this, these steps and we're super focused, we can get there. And I have never failed. If I, yeah. So that's, I did not walk through a wall. Um, what I realized was I couldn't even find this conventional nature of the mind. Um, all of us meditating on four establishments of mindfulness, I think at some point, I remember having a panicky conversation with someone being like, I can't find the object. What am I supposed to be doing in this session? Help. And being like, relax. You know, it's hard to find. But you, as the mind, as you sit in meditation, especially with a long winter retreat, you do get some sense, I think, right, of there's some space. The mind's not constantly flooded with thoughts, but there can be a space. So what he's giving us instruction on here is what to do, right? to try and hold that, to have a sense of that, and not to get distracted then by sounds and thoughts, which is super hard to, I don't know, I always get hooked by sounds at some point, you know, in the hall. I, I was for a while, like, but thoughts would come out and be like, no, not you, not this thought, not this thought. The mind got very quiet, but it's like, who's sitting in the back? Who's moving? <laughs> I get super, like, caught up with sound, you know? So anyway, see how it goes in retreat, but know that I, I love this instruction because to, you find the conventional nature of the mind right you get used to that eventually you're going to try and reflect on its ultimate nature and it will be like water poured into water <laughs> but <laughs> that will be a while <laughs> right that's how they describe the meditation on emptiness right in which you see that the ob observing subject and object are one nature Okay, so um, like His Holiness said, it is easy to repeat these words, <laughs> but what we're trying to do is get a sense of that in our own experience. Yeah. And what's useful about getting a sense of that, I think, is that we see, yeah, the mind is not our thoughts, right? We are not our thoughts. That is such a useful insight, though, no? right? Because I remember the first time I sat in retreat and it got quiet, I... I really identified with my thoughts. Right? I was shocked at the kinds of thoughts coming up. I was like, wow, you say some really nasty things <laughs> to yourself and about other people. And I was like, I'm so bad. <laughs> right? You just I'm like, did you actually say that? <laughs> Are you thinking those things? <laughs> I hope nobody can see my mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I'm, the laughter comforts me. Yes. <laughs> that everyone has this experience. So I'm sure you do too, online friends. Coming, the thoughts come and go. They're not in the nature of your mind. But likewise too, you know, you have some positive thoughts and you're like, yes, I'm kind. It's like, well, they come and go too, right? So, but just that little insight is helpful. It helps us to be less, you know, not be so attached to this idea of a permanent self, fixed afflictions. I am forever angry. I am always so depressed and I'll never get over it. It's like, oh, thoughts coming and going. Huh, the nature of mind, clear and cognizant. The Falmouth's not in the nature of mind. Interesting. Yeah. So that's what helps us to segue into the second key topic in this chapter, right? So like, if we observe that the nature of mind is immaterial, it's clarity and cognizance, then what's its relationship with the brain? Right? So I was not a particularly scientifically inclined person, so I never thought the mind was the brain because I was always daydreaming anyway. <laughs> you know, like, send your mind somewhere else. The teacher is talking. Mm. <laughs> so, 
But this little section in the book, I think, is an incredible summary of, I think, all the discussions that have gone on for years at the Mind and Life conferences right, between His Holiness and scientists. And I will check in with Nicole later, who's been at the heart of these discussions. But, you know, I think it comes at it from two angles. All right. First of all, asking, is the mind an emergent property of the brain? Now, what's the relationship here? Is it the brain that's producing the mind somehow? Right, because it looks like the mind depends on the brain in some ways. Right? So in this chapter, it talks about how if the brain is damaged, it affects our consciousness. Yeah? Some parts of the brain. Right? I remember yeah, my uncle slipped, fell, had a concussion, lost his sense of smell. I was like, oh, huh, falling down, bruising the brain can affect this. Hmm. Okay. So I think when you, due to this kind of observable data, it looks like the brain is what causes changes in the mind. Right? Then the Buddhists come back and say, hey, training the mind affects the brain. Right? So apparently they've done scientific experiments where they've looked at the brains of experienced meditators. I don't know how you measured that, but they see that training the mind in certain ways affects, it creates physical changes in parts of the brain too. Right? So looking at causality the other way. And I think a much cited example is how experienced meditators can remain in meditation after brain death. So that's not something that's easy to get a big sample size, right? <laughs> you know, His Holiness um, says, yeah, all these scientists were like waiting for an experienced meditator to pass away and it never happened when they had the equipment or the sample size is one, right? But that it actually happens at all is something that just gives us pause, right? That, oh, here's someone whose gross brain activity, the brain activity in scientific terms has ceased. Somehow their body has not decayed. Something's still going on, there's warmth, the mind is still in meditation. Like, wow. So that's where we start to see that mind and brain may not be, you know, it's not produced by the brain. The brain can stop and the mind can still be functioning at a very subtle level. So I know the conclusion of this little section talks about how causality happens both ways, right? It seems the brain affects the mind and the mind also affects the brain. Um, for me, what resonates the most is Venerable Children's example that she always gives about how if scientists truly believe that the brain is what's producing emotion, then the scientist should go home and ask the wife if, you know, do you love me? <laughs> or or the, ask the husband, if you love me, let's prove it. I should, I should be able to measure your love with electrical, some kind of measurable data, right? Test it that way. And that's not what happens, right? Or... She says, you should be falling in love with someone's brain, right? Because that's what's producing all their amazing ideas. And yeah, so whether we can measure things that way. Um, this section also goes on to talk about how there are consequences in terms of what we believe, right? If we believe that our genes and the brain are what affects our personality and our minds, then biological extension, if you change your genes, or if you change parts of the brain, that should alter, that should, that's the way to go, right? To change the mind, right? So, yeah, and she's talking about how that can lead to biological determinism, right? Which is quite chilling, right? Like, oh, if I have an alcohol gene, if, if I'm an alcoholic, it's predetermined, it's genetic. If I remove that gene, it'll work out. But if I can't remove it, then I'm doomed. I'm just gonna be alcoholic forever, I cannot change it. Right, so thinking of ourselves in those fixed ways is not helpful. Another tragic consequence I talk, thought about was also lobotomies, right? Where someone believes that if you go in and actually sever parts of the frontal lobe, it's going to help to reduce. I mean, so it had terrible results, didn't it? Maybe Venerable Jigme knows more than I do. Right? Just this idea that, you know, to resolve very difficult, violent um, mental illnesses, you could remove or cut parts of the brain, but it had really de like devastating results on other aspects of human behavior. Yeah. So this was before they really had medicines to help with, you know, severe mental illness. And so they would actually take an ice pick and put it up underneath the eyeball up here and um, uh, put it into the frontal lobe. And then um, the person became docile, but they couldn't think anymore. <laughs> so it wasn't so helpful. <laughs> but they were controllable. 
So mm -hmm. it was a very sad and icky time. <laughs> Yeah, well, thankfully, things have um, developed further in this conversation. Or, you know, discovering that, okay, you can have certain drugs to deal with different chemical responses in the body to affect the brain and, consequently, some mental processes. But that's not the full picture, right? As it says in the chapter, mental illness is multifaceted. There's so many factors going on. It does, just dealing with the brain alone, thinking that's the primary and only cause, uh, cannot lead to a full picture. And I think we see that with any illness, really. You know, like what we've learned, you need to deal with the emotional aspects. You know, whether or not people take medication entirely depends on trusting the doctor, having people encourage them. So any kind of healing is yeah, multifaceted. Anything to add? No. <laughs> so I just wanted to briefly read the summary, I think, of this section here on 165 to 66, um, where His Holiness just contrasts the differences in approach from science and Buddhism, right? where with science believes that all mental processes derive from the physical organ of the brain. right? So then by extension, you deal with the brain, right? But highest yoga tantra asserts that all mental processes, sense perceptions, emotions, intellect, coarse as well as subtle mental functions, derive from the primordial mind of clear light, the subtlest mind that is independent of the brain. So, you know, we can't measure that, but that's an interesting piece to contemplate. Yeah. That it's the mind that's producing all this, right? and it's the mind that connects with bodies that it gets dependent upon, but the mind goes on beyond the physical body. So here's where we get the link from nature of mind to relationship between mind and brain to rebirth. Right? So His Holiness goes on to say, the Buddhism doesn't see the mind as limited to the body and accepts past and future lives. It believes that our actions in one life can affect our future circumstances, perceptions, and emotions, and can influence which body with its unique genetic makeup we take in future lives. Science currently states that either the mind is the brain or it is an emergent property of the brain. So since the brain exists only in this life, most scientists have not considered investigating the possibility of the influence of past and future lives and focus only on what is noticeable in this life. So I think that's the cornerstone of where we get to how mind relates to rebirth. right? So if we believe that the mind and body are separate continuums, but with different substantial causes. And when the body's causes cease, the mind's causes do not. Then what happens? Right? Connects with another body. Right? Or going backwards, before the first moment of mind in this life, what happened before that? Previous moment of mind. Right. So that's the logical argument I think we're all familiar with here, or we've rehearsed many times. But for, I, I mean, for me anyway, when the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, huh, a logical argument about rebirth. Interesting. It's not just, you know, take it on faith. Right? There's actually a way to think about this, and we're encouraged to meditate on it repeatedly to see if it actually holds water in our experience. Um, so in this section on rebirth, uh, His Holiness talks about how we apply the three principles of causality, right, from Asanga's Compendium of Knowledge. Do we remember these? Do we want to quickly name them? <laughs> I think Venerable kept testing us on this. Um, yeah, concordance is one of them, right? So for sure, in order for some effect to be produced, it must have a concordant cause, or the cause must have the potential to produce that effect. That's the third one. But first of all, the most basic... Um, yeah, correct. Effects must have causes, right? There's no such thing as something that just... Sorry, I had to think about the sound of music. <laughs> you know that song? No, sorry, never mind. <laughs> no, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever should. <laughs> Could, yeah. And in my wild and wicked childhood, I must have done something good. <laughs> but anyway, so nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> Effects cannot arise without a cause. And the second one is? Yeah, but more like also if it, what I have here is effects cannot arise from a permanent cause. Yeah, so these causes cease. Yeah, they change moment to moment. It's not like, I don't know, some 
permanent seed is there and then it produces a sprout somehow that's separate and the seed is somehow unchanging. All right. And these three principles are applied, I think, to the question of what produces the mind. Right. And that's how we get into this whole question of, you know, yeah, it helps us link to rebirth, but yeah, what produces the mind? So could the sperm and egg produce the mind? Why not? What is the principle it doesn't, um, what that is not in accord with? <laughs> yeah, it's not concordant, right? So here he lays out logical absurdities that would arise, right? If form can produce mind, then all these immaterial objects should have mind, right? If the Big Bang was what produced mind, then rocks should feel things, right? So that's the logical absurdity that's being pointed out. So next, what about others' minds? Could that produce our mind? I had a friend who actually told me she believed, and this is a anyway woman who's very well educated, but I remember talking to her, and she sincerely believed that after death, your mind goes into a big cosmic soup and some kind of ladle is going to scoop out features from the collective mind and that's what goes into the next life. Yeah. So she described this process to me and I was like, okay. So what are the logical absurdities of that? Why couldn't our mind be made of other minds? Well, I would know what you were thinking, right? If, I was, if my mind were my mom's mind, I should have the same personality as her, similar I should have her memories, right? Or I should have the karma that she's created, right? Somehow they're gonna, my parents are gonna, my mind is some composite of my dad and mom's mind that kind of got squished together. And that's how, what defines me. I mean, that's obviously not true from our own observation and experience, right? We have, are very different from our parents. We have separate mind streams that have their own karma, right? So that's another logical absurdity. And then, we ask the question, could an external creator have created the mind? Why not? <laughs> yeah, right. Or if the creator, yeah, what caused the creator is one question, right? If the creator created our mind, then someone must have created the creator. Who? What came before that? Right? Or if there's the argument, if the creator is causeless, then how could he or she create? So there are all these logical fallacies here. And uh, in the book, in the chapter two, it points out, you're, there are bigger questions that are difficult to answer, like why would a creator create suffering, right, that people struggle with. Um, yeah. And it's a difficult one to sit with. You know, if you believe in an external creator, how do you reconcile that when deep suffering arises? Or, you know, does God cry for us? <laughs> this is a hard one. So anyhow, the conclusion this section comes to is the only thing that could have caused the mind is previous moment of mind, right? And it's beginningless, which a lot of people then get into like, how is that possible? Yeah. But I think the point of all this is for us to actually check up these logical arguments for ourselves. And that's what I found really helpful because I did not grow up believing in rebirth. You know, and initially when I went to Buddhist class, after a while I was like, look, this monk is talking about six realms, <laughs> that some of which I cannot see. I so don't get it. This is a superstitious religion. And I talked to the friend who brought me to the class and I was like, I don't believe in rebirth. I don't think I can stay in this class. Right? And she said, well, put it on the back burner and just keep coming and see what's useful. Right? And eventually something clicked. But what helped me a lot was just checking up. You know, If I believe certain things, what is the effect of it on my life? Right, so if I believe there is just one lifetime, how would I behave? Right, if I believe there is a creator and just one future life, either heaven or hell, how does that shape my worldview? Right, if I, like my friend, believe there is a primordial soup that we get scooped out of, how would I see the world? Right, or if I believe nothing is caused, which I did for quite a long time, right? You know, whatever, you have one life, who knows where it comes from, get what you want when you got it, right? Yeah, so these are the conclusions that we come to it. Just this little piece of belief shapes our ethics, shapes our entire worldview. So it's really important, I think, to come back to this. Eventually, all I found was believing in rebirth made me a better person. So whether or not I could prove it, I decided to accept it.
So I'm, that's the next question I pose to everyone here. And again, if there are people online, um, I'm curious, how, so how did you come to accept the idea of rebirth? And how has that affected your life? Uh, one of my, of my first Buddhist books was the book on death. And so there's a lot about talking about bardo. And then I later, years later, I thought more about the bardo process and uh, followed guided meditations about the bardo process. And then it became very, very clear for me that this is the way, how it will be. And um, also it takes a lot of effort and habituation to stay within that um, conviction. You know, um, old habits always um, throw me back. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm convinced that the mind continues and whatever um, was previously especially strong that will happen immediately in my next life. So, yeah. For me, when I think about um, where I am in this life um, and I look in this life, I don't find any causes and conditions that um, produced me becoming a Buddhist nun from this life. And yet there are certain things that seem quite familiar to me. Like the first time I was I put on robes on ordination, it was like, this is really familiar. Mm. And so those kinds of things um, are what opened my mind to think there's things that have happened in the past lives that have created what is happening now. Because in this life alone, what I grew up with and, you know, where I came from, I should not be dressed like this <laughs> at all. So. I've always believed in rebirth. Hmm. Um, when I was a little kid, I, I'm not claiming any memories here, but I did, I did, when I was like eight, nine, ten, I would, um, prescribe home remedies for people that were sick. And I knew that it was clear because I had been a doctor. And I and it was clear in my mind I had been a doctor in a past life. No, no memory, right? This is no claim. But somehow that idea that this was just a part of my understanding as a child. And I wonder, because my great-grandmother also, when my little sister was born, she was convinced that it was the child she had lost had come back to her. So there was some, I don't know, some folk belief or something that was around. So I started reading Edgar Cayce when I was, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14, who was um, an American. I'm not sure what he was, actually, because I haven't gone back to look. But he, was a, he, he did a lot of research and a lot of writing on past life stuff. So there is a piece, maybe a little tiny narrow section of American culture where this idea, of course, it's not as sophisticated as Buddhism or anything like that. But but when I met Buddhism and actually saw a logical explanation, it was like, well, wow, cool. <laughs> cool. It's not just some family fantasy that I grew up with. I have two people online that said they had near-death experiences. That's it? <laughs> or did they want to say more? <laughs> You want to write us an essay? Near death experience as a child, nearly drowned, panic turned to calm in another place. Oh. So, like seeing that there's something more beyond after death, the mind goes somewhere else, right? Okay. Anyone else? I think what really convinced me over time was getting to know people who were not world famous but they were extraordinarily talented people. Mm. So the typical ones we know of are musical people, you know, who don't have parents that have any musical talent whatsoever. I know a person who's a sculptor, um, you know, world-class skill and talent, and he developed this, you know, from an early childhood interest. And just seeing other kids, you know, when I was teaching elementary school, that had these intense interests in things. And, you know, one little girl was teaching herself Spanish, you know, and she was just, you know, she was not in a Spanish family. There were no Spanish people at the school. And so those kinds of things where there's this intense interest and talent and ability that is not explainable in any other way has been quite convincing, as have stories of people who have remembered their past lives mm -hmm. and they've been researched by um, that one fellow, Stevens. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but I'm curious too whether it changed the way people lived or thought about your lives too. Um, I say this because yeah, I I I was very much like I need some kind of proof, right? And the, so like one person's story, I was like, meh. But what helped me a lot was the meditation on the idea that you could have done anything in your past life, or that in future lives you can also do anything if you have certain afflictions still raging, right? And that gave me a whole different perspective on war. Like I stopped hating people for perpetrating harm. It just helped me get a handle on the anger I felt. I was like, oh wow, huh? I could have done this in a past life. Wow. Or I could do this in a future one. And that just seeing the effect that idea had on my mind, that it helped me calm down a lot of my righteous anger. And I was like, I think this is a useful concept, <laughs> even if I don't. But can't see it. It's helping me be more compassionate. So I thought, let's just hang on to this for now, you know. And that—that's what got me、um, encouraged to think about rebirth. Yeah, Venerable Lamsell. I first heard about rebirth from a friend in high school who、um, was Hindu,、mm. and who was very, very intelligent, was starting to be a doctor. And he explained it to me, and I'm like. You think you can be reborn as a grasshopper? That's just insane. <laughs> and then I just dropped the idea and didn't think about it until I met Buddhism. And then hearing it, I'm like, okay, it was just this kind of blind acceptance. It's just like, okay, that makes sense. So it's interesting, interesting just to see that shift. But then、um, I was doing the meditation on the continuity of consciousness, and I found it really frustrating. Because following the mind moments back to try and think about it, getting to the womb, there was a certain point where I hit and I couldn't remember anymore.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm like, well, what am I meant to do now? I, I can't go back. So then I just got really tight with it. But then I think something clicked around. There's a lot more that I don't know that I don't have access to. That、um, obviously I was born. There was these moments of mind that I can't remember. So then, what? And it just opened up this sphere of possibility, I think. And then asking bigger questions about: Am I just focusing on this one life? But if I was from before and I'm going to go forward, then maybe I need to expand my view a bit more than just the happiness of this life. And it started to feel a bit more the scope of the things I need to consider beyond just. My own family, my partner, this career, this life—it started to get a lot bigger and feel a lot more important. Yeah. So for sure, I think this is a very profound topic. We can spend a lot of time meditating on, and it's important, I think, to not to like take it on blind faith, like you said, but to repeatedly check up. Right? What do I actually believe on the most fundamental level? How am I organizing my life? Do I actually believe in rebirth? Is that governing the way I think and I act and interact with people? And what if I did? Yeah, sorry, venerable, jump up. It's important、um, to mention because if if one really if we really meditate、uh, and think deeply about that topic on rebirth and karma,、um, it can really change the life. I I remember very clearly that this is one of the main reasons why I ordained, why I did not stay in a relationship. I wanted to make my life meaningful,、um, and I knew also, and that's still driving me、um, to refrain from really horrendous actions. You know,、um, of course, there are still habits of certain mental actions, but、um, you know, I I have a really horrendous. Um, fear to harm somebody, for example, when I drive, you know,、um, or even small insects, it hurts me. Or when a cat gets hurt, you know, I have these goosebumps, and so、uh, I really don't want to hurt anybody deeply. So I think everyone's responses here have covered what is in this chapter too. You know, about the、um, proofs for past lives that we can turn to, right? Whether it's accounts of people who remember them. Um, our own experience of hmm things that don't seem to be caused in this life, right? Or His Holiness says by inference,、um, none of us remember being in the womb, but we were there <laughs> for sure. That piece, right? So by inference, something happened. Bef- something produced the mind. Before that, we can infer there might might have been a previous moment of mind from another life, right? So it's just checking up. 
in this way. I appreciate very much, she says here too, that um, there's no harm in believing in rebirth if it helps us to subdue our afflictions and cultivate good qualities. So I definitely think it's worth checking up. Um, you know, if you can't accept rebirth, then what do you believe? And does it help you become a better person? Is that actively helping you cultivate compassion and love in your life? That's, uh, yes, venerable pendant. <laughs> of course, I cannot approve rebirth. But then I think one of the things that I really pay attention is at this present moment, that means I create the cause for future and future lives. So if I'm, my mind is always distracted, got uh, proliferated or whatever, and I, if I think at this present moment, that is where I create the cause for the future and future lives. If I live meaningfully, fully, and ethically, that means I prepare actually that I create for the bright future. So I'm not, I'm not like always looking for the future life or future, but at this moment, I, if I live that, then I create the, mm -hmm. for the, so instead of like always like looking for the future or future life, but ignoring the present moment. Mm -hmm. That is my point of that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, instead of always like, oh, I'm worried, what, 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 which hell I'm be in uh, my next rebirth, and forget about the present moment. That's why I remind myself, participant, it seems we need to pay a lot of attention to this present moment because that is we create the, the resolve for the future. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's very much the Buddhist understanding of pay attention to the present. It's mm -hmm. not how does this chocolate taste right now? Right, you're saying, how am I creating ethical causes that will have yeah, so positive results? We don't have to yeah. worry about what, uh, like a, this hell ram or ghost right. ram or, or, or hungry ghost or whatever. Because if we take care of this present moment, we create the bright future and future lives. So that is, I think, I, I, I have to pay attention to the present moment. Yeah, and that's what His Holiness mentions in this chapter too, right? Where he teaches the kalamas, where you know they may not believe in rebirth, but he says if you practice now to have an ethical life, at the time of death you're gonna have a peaceful death. If there is a next life, well, there will be good results. And if there isn't, well, you had a good, you you lived well in this life, so no regrets. Yeah, so that was a very skillful way of the Buddha to teach about rebirth. So the rest of this chapter is um, primarily from a sutra responding to a query about what happens after death, right? where the Buddha is talking to his father, the King Suddhodana, right? asking questions about rebirth. Um, and it's, I just wish it were available in English. I'm trying to look for it. It's a summary that Geshe Dadu Namgyal put together, it seems, that Venerable actually published on her website in 2008. Yeah, so it's a summary of the sutra. But why I think it's really helpful, we don't have time to get into it, but it starts to deal with all the misconceptions we can have about rebirth, right? especially if you grew up thinking about uh, believing in a soul. right? So thinking, oh, you know, here's this like fix me that's going to come out of this body and go into a cat. right? And, ding, and here's me with the same personality in a cat that is kind of adorable and funny or whatever. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Right? And it goes through many different analogies of how rebirth functions. So that's a really helpful section to read. Sorry, but Matt had something. And to be clear, hopefully it wasn't confused online, but the Buddha did teach rebirth. It wasn't just mm -hmm. him giving similes saying, oh, it'll mm -hmm. be good if you do and good if you don't. Mm -hmm. Like it's super clear. He's like, when this body or when this mind goes to the next life over and over. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, so I do think in the book he's talking, yeah, he's dealing with the kalamas in a skillful way, but yes, for sure the Buddha taught about past lives and spoke about his recollection of past lives. Yeah. And I think what we're hearing today is um, how believing in rebirth can help us to cultivate ethical conduct um, and our good qualities like love and compassion. And for me, that's the most important thing. Like what, even if I can't prove it, is it having a positive effect on my mind? And, I, and does it help you in difficulties? I remember one of the friends of, you know, um, a family came here to grieve someone they loved. And the s sister in the family who didn't believe in Buddhism said, just the idea that my brother could be one of these bugs <laughs> makes me feel like he's still around and I feel like I should be kind to bugs. 
I think what happened was shortly after his death, um, a, a, a spider came into the room and she was telling everyone, no, don't kill it. Who knows? Could be him. <laughs> you know, so it just changed her whole way of relating to the world and it helped her deal with her grief in that way. It wasn't like, <laughs> ah, but like, oh, he's somewhere. He's still somewhere in this world and let's take care of all life knowing that they could all be my brother. I thought, wow, that's really profound <laughs> that she could have that idea and it's helping her in her life. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've used our time. Are there any final questions or comments? I just wanted to end off saying that in the guided meditations outline, there is a, also a wonderful you know, set of points that Venerables laid out on how to meditate on the mind and rebirth. That if we had time, we'd do, but I think people will fall asleep. <laughs> so that's something you should definitely look at, right? Where she encourages, she, the points have us look at how in this life, we, we are part of a continuum. Yeah, you are not the same person as you were at three months, right? There's a profound difference, right? So biological extension, it is possible that the mind and the body could have been very different in a previous life, right? And she gets us to reflect on how each moment of mind has a cause and go all the way back to the moment of conception, like Venerable Lamsell uh, described. So now that you have instructions from chapter six and seven, you can guide yourself through that in your daily practice, which is helpful. <laughs> so, you know, do that, go back, trace the moments of mind all the way back to conception and just sit there and ask, what came before this? Yeah, and see what effect that has for you. Okay. So let's uh, sit quietly for a bit just to digest what we've heard today and see what we might bring into our practice going forward. And we can rejoice that we've spent this time together trying to deepen our understanding of how the mind exists and how that connects to past and future lives, uh, which is a very way, different way of thinking about ourselves and the world. And rejoice in seeing how that enables us to cultivate our good qualities, to strengthen our ethical conduct, and by doing so, be of greater benefit to others and whoever we come into connection with. <laughs>